0: The Student Voting Network podcast is produced by students at a national level. This podcast does not reflect the views of any organizations associated with the Student Voting Network. Welcome to the Student Voting Network podcast, Student Voting Network or SVN is a nonpartisan space for students across the nation. After all the hard work done in previous years relating to student organizing, we intend with this podcast to create a platform for and by students to express their views, share insight, organize for a better future, learn efficient ways to reach student voters in meaningful ways, and to help discern fact from fiction in this era of fake news and alternative facts. If you want to get involved in our digital space as a student, and if you want to connect with hundreds of other students, visit bit.ly s-v-n-s-l-a-c-k, that's bit.ly svnslack and sign up today. My name is Benjamin Nixon, and I am a member of the Campus Vote Project's Student Advisory Board. I use he, him pronouns. Currently, I'm located in the Greater Philadelphia Metropolitan Region and I'm attending Rutgers Camden University. With me today are my co-hosts, Nicholas Bartell. Nicholas, how are you doing today? Great, glad to be here. I'm also joined by Emma Godell. Hey, Emma, how are you?
1: I am tired, but good. And I'm really happy to see all of you. So thank you so much for putting this together.
0: And of course, Erica Neal. What's up, Erica?
2: Hi, everyone. So excited to be here.
0: So, before we proceed, I want to ask everyone to introduce themselves and provide our listeners with uh, your pronouns. Tell us where you're studying. And most importantly, I want you to share how you got involved in the SVN. So, let's start with you, Erica.
2: Thank you. Um, my name is Erica. I use she, her, hers pronouns, and I am a graduate student at the University of California, Berkeley. I studied masters, or uh, I'm getting my master's in public health, um, and I graduated from Virginia State University in Petersburg, Virginia, with a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science. That's actually where I started my journey into Campus Vote Project, and I got involved with the Student Voting Network through the Student Advisory Board. And it's been a, one hell of a journey, if I have to say. We've had so many projects, so many opportunities, and I can see myself growing as a student organizer and moving into a new space, hopefully, as I continue throughout my graduate studies.
0: Thank you so much, Erica. Uh, East Coast, West Coast, I think East Coast is a little better, but that's a controversial yet brave opinion. What about you, Emma? Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Um, Hi. So the East Coast is totally better, first of all. Um, My name is Emma Goodell. Uh, My pronouns are she, her, hers. I don't know. Erica's giving me a thumbs down. Um, I am a senior at Allegheny College in Meadville, Pennsylvania, which is in like the Great Lakes region of Pennsylvania, uh, like two hours north of Pittsburgh. Uh, Really interesting swing area. Um, I am a political science student, and I focus more on uh, American politics than like world politics or comparative politics. Um And I got involved in uh, student voting in general when Allegheny College reported uh, an eight percent turnout rate in two thousand and fourteen. Now, I wasn't there at the time. I had nothing to do with that, but I resolved to make sure that never happened again. Uh, Also, um, ever since my freshman year, I've been lucky enough to be one of a 32-member student government, and my freshman year, I learned that I was one of, like, three people in the entire government who voted on election day, which was ridiculous. So uh, I've been doing a lot of work to increase voter turnout at the local level, and then I... uh, attended the Western Pennsylvania Student Voting Summit uh, in 2020, where I learned about Campus Vote Project, and I met Nick, and we've been organizing ever since. So yeah, I applied to be a Democracy Fellow, um, made the connection with Allegheny College and Campus Vote Project, and now I interned for the whole organization. So I'm sorry, that was super long, but it's been a great journey.
0: No need to apologize. I asked you about your journey. So thank you so much for sharing that, Emma. And Nick, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure. So,
3: my name's Nicholas Bartel. Uh, as uh, Ben previously was talking about, uh, I use he/him pronouns, and I'm a sophomore at Washington Jefferson College, and that's in southwestern Pennsylvania. Uh, I am a triple major of political science, environmental studies, and Spanish, and I got involved with. Um, Civil engagement generally uh, back in high school when I served as a poll worker for uh, a couple of elections uh, and then I saw that as statistics have shown that we have not a whole lot of young people voting and that kind of got me involved with like student government, and I was also involved with uh, student Congress in um, height with high school debate uh, and then whenever I came to Washington Jefferson. Uh, Uh, I was a part of our student government and we actually were uh, offered, uh, we we had an opportunity to go to the Western PA Student Voting Summit and I was one of two who were actually interested. Uh, Of a 40, 45 person uh, government, only two were actually interested actually went so i think that was definitely something that was quite impactful um, for me was just going there seeing all those very similarly interested people uh, who all wanted to work for improving student engagement um, and then became student uh democracy fellow with uh, the campus vote project and just had a great time ever since
0: most excellent i like hearing these stories because it shows that uh it doesn't really matter where you're coming from in your life uh these organizations exist to elevate students across the nation. Uh I do have to say it feels like Pennsylvania is perhaps a little bit overrepresented in this uh in this podcast given that there are uh three of us out of four.
1: Um if it helps, I forgot to clarify um I wouldn't consider myself to be like a real authentic Pennsylvanian. I go to school there, but I'm coming to you from my home in southern Maine where I've done a lot of work uh, in Seacoast, New Hampshire, and Southern Maine politics. So yeah, I'm kind of half and half. I'm not entirely Pennsylvania. I don't say yins yet.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. And for what it's worth, I also don't say yins. I still stick with y'all, which is the term used in Maryland, my home state. So um, thank you so much everybody for these introductions. And so now I sort of want to pivot into uh, what we would call the post-election environment Now, the post-election environment, it's a very nuanced phrase because uh, it is very mercurial. As we've seen over the last week, uh, there have been a number of events that have occurred, but we'll get to those momentarily. What I first wanted to touch upon was how we're feeling as student organizers in this space. Um, In no particular order, whoever wants to go first, what, what are your thoughts and your feelings after this election?
2: This election season, um, it taught me a lot about myself and it taught me a lot about the communities that I focus on organizing, which uh, are HBCU students, students of color, um, and now my new family over on the West Coast, the best coast, by the way, um, and about the, the voting block and how important it is uh, to be relatable as an organizer in our spaces. I think that it's okay that we all can't fit into, or speak to, or or try to be in those same spaces at the same time. But it's about uh, making sure that our teams are diversified to gather as many people as possible to do the very simple thing, which is using your right to vote. Um, And as I was hearing more stories from HBCU students and mainly from uh, the students at UC Berkeley, there there was just a, a sense of, wow, like this is my chance to actually contribute to something that is going to have a lasting effect. And it's not like this isn't the first time that this has happened, but for a lot of new voters this year, it was. Um, and we've seen the culmination of, uh, of four years and particularly for, for my freshman class, when it was our time to vote in 2016, we didn't take it seriously. So organizers that have came out of that uh, block, and then making sure that uh, the freshmen this year made sure that they were involved, and and the sophomores, and even the high school graduates that have had their graduations taken away, their lives uprooted, um, and and showing how and making that connection uh, was one of the best skills that I've seen so many organizers, including you all, use to your advantage, and I couldn't be more proud. Um in this very moment, I do have to say that I, I have to give credit where it is due uh to the young voters out uh, there, to, to the Gen Z organizers uh who really did what they had to do in the booth, who did what they had to do for those uh uh campaign calls for either side, uh for the phone baking and and the the, the TikToks, like they used what was told to us as as social media or bad uh internet and made it work for them um so i couldn't be any more proud of the work that we've all contributed to it and i'm just happy to be entering a space of serenity even if it is for 14 or 13 days Um, i'm just happy to be able to take a look take a look back at where we've come and then, of course, be excited about where we're about to go.
3: Echoing off of what Eric was saying, uh, it's I, I'm also seeing that this year, I know in 2016, we saw a lot of concern over um, uh, people using fake news on social media pages with Facebook and Instagram and whatnot. But in 2020, since we were all forced online to do our organizing, it seems like there's a lot more issues that were being able to be dispersed to the general community. I've, I can't tell you how many times I've seen the, uh, like the stories on Instagram of look at, check out this issue, check out the issue, go with, um, the Rohingya Muslims in Myanmar, check out what's going on around the world that people aren't aware of, or communities aren't aware of other communities having those issues. So it's just bringing people together, uh, in a time where we're basically separated. And I think that's the power of the so, of social media, uh, and how people are kind of uniting among those issues in ways that we've not seen historically before, with incredible turnout. So I, th- I think that's something, like Erica was mentioning, this is something that we can credit to Gen Z uh, supporters. We can credit just to the our groups pushing for these reforms and actually getting our accomplishments done.
1: Yeah, I think echoing that, um, the four of us all have uh work experience with Campus Vote Project, which simply put is to increase uh student voter turnout from a nonpartisan standpoint. You know, like we don't endorse anyone, we don't attack anyone, we just increase turnout. So from a nonpartisan perspective, 2020 was a huge victory for us. I mean, we just completely blew record turnout out of the water and then some. And most importantly, we saw record turnout um, at the 18 to 25-year-olds level, which I think is awesome. I will say, though, um, again, we won't be able to confirm this until we see uh, like some political science uh, studies and articles in a few years. But... I think that the concept of abnormality and feelings of fear really drove a lot of people to the polls like I saw a lot of people. um, Whether they were my friends or elected officials on social media saying something along the lines of this year I'm voting for Joe Biden because I want things to get back to quote normal okay. So now Joe Biden has won the election, and I think sometime this year or maybe next year things will become their definition of normal okay cool my concern is if i'm right and this sense of fear really drove uh people to the polls to become first-time voters is under a quote-unquote normal presidential election year are we going to have the momentum that we had in 2020 and are we only going to get record turnout when people feel that like there is a sense of chaos? So again, my concern is um, we're approaching uh, a non-federal election, and for whatever reason, the term um, city manager or state auditor just doesn't have the same appeal as U.S. senator or president of the United States. That's a big concern for us because I don't want us to lose our momentum either now or next year when. We won't have a presidential race, but we'll still have congressional races. So, I'm happy that we had such great turnout, but I'm concerned that we'll be going to we're going to lose this momentum going forward uh, because things are now quote unquote normal. Um, I think this is a really good segue. Um, we're gonna talk more about what happened uh, on January sixth, but we need to go back a little bit and talk about January fifth which was the date of the Georgia Senate runoff elections. And uh, this was supposed to be a huge victory uh, for the organizers in Georgia, specifically the young black women of Georgia who have been doing this work for many years, not just this 2020 election season. Can I transition to Erica here? She wanted to talk a little bit more about what this uh, Georgia happening meant in relation to what's happening now and what happened on the sixth,
2: thank you so much, uh, emma, and i'm I'm really happy to be able to talk about this. I am not uh, or nor have I ever been a Georgia resident, but I relate uh, to black women as an organizer um in more ways than one. And Emma I really wanted to touch on what you said about um, a voter of there was a voter block turnout that was motivated by fear. And I wanted to add something to that. The fear of, of a lot of the issues that were on the docket this year uh, were basic needs. Basic needs uh, like healthcare during a pandemic or access to food, um, of course, during a pandemic, but in general, uh, fair wages um, and being and, ha- and having the option to be paid um, when you're sick. Uh, things that other other countries have fleshed out and have done so equitably, um, things that other, uh, including within our country, other states uh, had to take the lead, take uh, the the initiative to do the right thing and make sure that people were taken care of. Um, and more, and, and Georgia was one of those states where they hadn't seen that happen. And as a black woman organizer, as a black organizer in general, it really bothered the voting blocks that you've seen to their core, um, they have families, they have career aspirations, they have they have dreams as well, but they can't attain those those higher portions in life without taking care of the basic things: housing, healthcare, food, jobs, resources to live, um, and and that's what Black organizers really tapped into this year. Um, on On either side of the spectrum in reality. So from from that particular lens, this isn't the first time that we've seen that happen actually. Um, and unfortunately, this won't be the last in, in my opinion, uh, because time and time again, we've we've seen these these voter blocks and these organizers get appreciated during election season and then tossed to the wayside any other time. Um, we're only given credit around this time. And I really want to encourage all of us, um, including the ones who are listening, uh, to make sure that we're showing up when we need to show up and that we're listening, and, or more importantly, that we're taking a step back and letting the people who are on the ground fighting day in and day out, whether it's an election year or not, about issues, uh, that go beyond the political spectrum about issues that go beyond uh, just what we see in and whether it be in legislative uh, courtrooms or or what we're seeing in uh, in the news. Like these are people's real life experiences that that we were fighting for and that we've been fighting for, um, and it's really important to let those people lead in those communities instead of instead of. You know, outsiders coming in to to say X, Y, and Z or to do X, Y, and Z, we need to have a community perspective when it comes to that, giving resources to those who've already been in those situations and can help those in that in that community versus us just coming in as a savior. You know, I'm I'm I couldn't be any more proud uh, of what the Black women organizers in Georgia and across the nation have done in this election season, but more so. Um, what we've been doing, uh, and that includes in from May until now with the Black Lives Matter movement. That includes uh, before then in the Civil Rights movement, and that will always be until we see justice and until we see equity. Uh, these are our these are our daily lives.
0: It's such a good point, and and I just want to maybe reiterate one of the points you made earlier about sort of and, and you didn't say it this explicitly, but there's this propensity of national organizations to sort of parachute in and and act like from this very top- down hierarchical standpoint that they know what's best for these states because they're looking at it from a 30,000 foot up view. Um, and oftentimes both political parties, when they have, you know single party control of a state or a region for a number of years, Focus gets shifted less from the locality and more to the national aspect of that region. So, I'll be very interested to see how both the DNC and the RNC begin to approach Georgia, whether they embrace this grassroots, bottom up, you know, very organic led movement that has had, you know, over a decade to develop, or if they'll, as they've historically done, refer back to that parachuting, where they just start sending in, you know, dumping in a lot of money and organizers. And it's worth noting that dumping money into races, as we noted this year, uh, didn't really result in drastic flips. So clearly donating to candidates may not be as useful as donating to organizations, which can help build campaigns for people in a more organic way. So I really appreciate, though, uh, that perspective, Erica, and also all the hard work done by countless student organizers and and people who are in this space not even being paid in certain instances. And that's another big issue that I think uh, I'm left thinking about after this most recent election is how do we actually bring paychecks to people who are working other jobs, um, two jobs, three jobs, and have families that they need to care for and have groceries that they need to buy. So these are all definitely things that will be getting a lot of traction in an ideal you know, student organizer world over the next year. In terms of momentum, I think there's a lot of momentum to keep these really well-built organic machines rolling. It's a question of who will pay um, and, and who will um, be willing to step up for student organizers nationwide that's really the open-ended question uh which is why i'm glad to be with the campus vote project um, and others you know like it to help provide uh, paid opportunities for students to get involved
2: i completely agree um and i, I do have to say emma you know i have a, a little bit more of an optimistic perspective about this momentum i think that we have a large voting block that finally got to see what we were talking about um, or what was being talked about in civics class come to fruition. Um, there are a lot of incidents in, within this presidency where we're learning about things or the things that we've learned about in, in history books and in the classroom. We're actually seeing playing out uh, in terms of impeachment proceedings, um, possibly the invokement of the 25th Amendment, what happens if, if of congressional uh, members decide to reject the Electoral College. Things are happening that haven't happened before, uh, which is bringing real-life experience, so more and more people are just starting to make the connection, like, oh my gosh, maybe climate change is related to politics. Oh my gosh, wow, I didn't know that. Um, or or the simple thing of the the argument between $600 or $2,000 for uh, a, a, a stimulus check is being fought about in Congress, and some people really did not know about that, that that those kinds of things were argued about at that level. They didn't make the connection that um, their their local and their state elected officials have as much power, if not more, in terms of their daily life, um, as the president, uh, or honestly, more than the president. We know this to be organizers, but the people that were organizing didn't always have that connection. And the more real world experiences that we're exposed to, the more that voting block becomes more educated and they know what to look for in the candidates in the upcoming elections.
3: Yeah, I mean, echoing off of, once again, what Erica said, uh, it's, well, a lot of people are like, 2020 was the worst year in recorded history. I think it was, it served more as a magnifying glass. It took a deeper look at these problems, just, didn't pop up because we had some curse from Egyptian mummies or whatever. Like this happened because these problems weren't just in 2020. These problems have been going on for decades upon decades upon decades. And 2020 just brought them to light. And so kind of, I I know we'll be talking about this a little later uh, in the podcast, but something that I'm really looking forward to seeing is people looking at it and actually being able to like, uh, actually be able to, like, to respond and solve those issues because like erica was mentioning we're learning all about government and aspects of government that we've never really experienced before all the things that are in like textbooks are coming to life before our eyes like if you told me four years ago that yeah they're gonna ha- we're gonna be having people storming the senate we're gonna be having people wearing Norse costumes, standing in like the chambers of one of the, like one of the most prestigious government buildings in the United States, I would have laughed and said, you're crazy. But we're seeing all these things transpire. And I think it's just, we're seeing magnified uh, things that have kind of just slipped by that new, that normal that Emma was talking about earlier in the show, the return to normal. I really think that if we return to the normal, we need to fix all of those background problems before. And then that's what I really hope to continue to do, uh, is to bring attention to those background issues that were brought to light.
0: I think it's really notable. I'm a a history nerd myself, and I, I really like the Uh, incantation of the, you know, the mummy, because to me, it seems like a lot of people really do feel like this is an ancient curse that just suddenly happened. And it so isn't. In fact, there is a history of violence and insurrection within the United States, and it is not constrained simply to Washington, D.C. It's also not only a part of more recent years, what we've seen is is the historicity of insurrection movements in the country to destabilize valid election results. It's happened before, uh, and it almost happened again. And I, bearing that in mind, I just briefly want to talk about uh, the history of insurrections as it relates to the incident on the 6th. And I know, Nicholas, you'll be getting into a timeline a little bit later about what happened on the 6th. But I think it's important that we talk about the Capitol insurrection uh, here in this space because it is one of the darkest days of my lifetime. Um, And and I'm somebody who, you know, lived through 9-11 and remembered watching it. And now I'll always remember watching the storming of the Capitol. Um, and although they had their own disastrous impacts, um, certainly this incident, this insurrection on the 6th will, will never go away in, in our collective consciousness. The culpability of elected officials in exacerbating the Capitol insurrection with vitriolic falsehoods um, is notable. A disproportionately lax police response in comparison to the Black Lives Matter protests has drawn justified and you know intense scrutiny. There have been Capitol Police leadership resignations. The House and Senate Sergeant at Arms were asked to resign by respective leaders of both houses. And the insurrection fits into a pattern of behavior, as I mentioned earlier, from a historical lens. In fact, we do have instances of insurrectionists overthrowing elected governments um, within the last 125 years in this country. Notably in North Carolina, uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, where white insurrectionists burned black owned newspaper publications to the ground, they killed anywhere between four and 300 black Americans. Now that's a pretty sizable gap if between four and 300. and that just goes to show when somebody's in charge of reporting the facts, Whose facts are getting reported? Um, because four and three hundred are such an incredible difference. Of course, any loss of life is terrible, um, but you know that's the difference between a war crime or a, you know a, a spree murder. And essentially, what this insurrection did is it stopped any meaningful attempts at racial reconciliation in North Carolina until the civil rights movement, uh, which of course was a national movement. Though white newspapers derided the incidents as black incited race riots, a white supremacist militia known as the Red Shirts brought a Gatling gun to the insurrection. The National Guard and the police stood idly by. Um, Three decades later, uh, we saw stirrings of another insurrection in what's known now as the business plot. After Franklin Delano Roosevelt was elected, there were a group of Wall Street business executives who approached Marine Corps General Smedley Butler and asked him to lead an army of tens of thousands of armed veterans into Washington DC to overthrow the democratically elected government. Now that is an extreme example and certainly an example that didn't get very far off the ground and yet those conversations existed. So an open question about this insurrection historicity that we have in this country is what happened on the 6th to allow for insurrectionists to get inside the Capitol building and nearly kill elected officials. Um, And with that question, I'm gonna turn it over to Nicholas to walk us through a timeline of what happened uh, and what failed, what prevented an adequate response to these insurrectionists?
3: Sure, thank you. So this didn't just pop up out of nowhere. Uh, I mean, this goes back to December 19th uh, where President Trump tweeted, uh, uh, quote, statistically impossible to have lost the 2020 election, big protest in DC on January 6th, be there, will be wild, uh, end quote. And Later that day, uh, the founder of Stop the Steel Group, uh, Kylie Kremer, uh, tweeted, "Quote: The Calvary is coming, uh, Mr. President," and listed information on that protest. So we saw this happening, and police
0: saw this happening, going back until uh, the end of last year. And Nicholas, this is this was in plain sight, correct? This was yeah. on social is on media. Twitter. Yeah, okay. this was on Twitter.
3: This was uh, President Trump uh, that actually retweeted on uh new year's day as uh, the tweet saying quote a great honor so this was clear evidence that president trump a had seen it b had recognized it and c had like retweeted it with a comment of support uh, and representative uh Louis gohmert said in an interview uh with newsmax uh quote uh but th- if the bottom line is the court rule. The court is saying we're not going to touch this. You have no remedy. Basically, in effect, the ruling would be that you got to go to the street and be as violent as Antifa and BLM. Uh, and that was from uh, Newsmax reference. Uh, that was in a Rolling Stone article. So we see that Republican uh, legislature, le- legislators were actually calling for violence in the streets, not the peaceful. Um, protests that we see a little bit later on uh, in the timeline. Uh, So on January 6th, uh, the doors opened for the Save America rally, as it was named, uh, around 7 a.m. Donald Trump Jr. opens uh, with saying uh, in his speech, quote, the people who uh, who did nothing to stop the steal, this gathering uh, should send a message to them. This isn't the Republican Party anymore. This is Donald Trump's. He later said, if you're gonna be the zero and not the hero, we're coming for you and we're gonna have a good time doing it. And that's from the Guardian. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, President Trump's lawyer uh, followed, if we're wrong, we'll be made fools of, but if we're right, a lot of them will go to tr- uh, go to jail. So let's have trial by combat. That's also from the Guardian as well. Uh, so Trump begins his speech um, on the ellipse, which is just right outside of the White House. Uh, and he said some very troubling things in that speech. Uh, it kind of, that could be seen as provoking uh, these uh, people to storm the uh, Capitol. Uh, six minutes into it, he says, There uh, never have been anything like this. We're, uh, we will not let them silence your voices. We're not going to let it happen, not going to let it happen. Uh, the crowd responded, Fight for Trump, fight for Trump, fight for Trump. He further perpetuates the, the idea a little bit later on in the speech when he says you'll have an illegitimate president. That's what you'll have and we can't let that happen. Uh, these are facts that you won't hear from the fake news media. It's all part of the suppression effort. They don't want to hear about it. And keep in mind around this uh, same time uh, Vice President uh, Michael Pence releases a letter to Congress that he does not have the unilateral authority to overturn the results and begins the joint uh, session. Uh, and he uh, then eventually will. Uh, he, he then eventually respond. Uh, was speaking to his uh, supporters, saying, uh, "Looking out at all the amazing patriots here today, I've never been more confident in our nation's future." Uh, he later on went to say, "If we allow this group of people to illegally take over our country, because it's illegal when the votes are illegal." when the way they got there is illegal, when the states that vote are given fraudulent or false and fraudulent information, we are still, we are the greatest country on earth uh, and we are headed headed in the right direction. Uh, Just kind of just taking a step back, we saw no evidence of that widespread voter fraud. The likelihood of being, uh, like seeing those evidence, that evidence of voter fraud, you're more likely to be struck by lightning and date a millionaire than we are to actually see voter fraud in the U.S. election. Like this is not in the hundreds of thousands. We're talking less than a hundred. Like the, at, at at worst.
0: And and I just want to emphasize, we definitely on this podcast do not uh, want you to stand out in a field with a metal rod up during a lightning storm. Although if you're able to date a millionaire, good for you. <laughs> yeah, of
3: course. And President Trump. Ends his speech by saying, "So we're going to we're going to walk down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. I love Pennsylvania Avenue. We're going to the Capitol, and we're going to try to give." Then goes off uh, into saying, "The Democrats are hopeless. They're never voting for anything, not even one vote. But we're going to try and give our Republicans the weak ones because the strong ones don't need any of our help. We're going to try and give them the kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back the country." Uh, and. With that, we saw at 1.13 in the afternoon, uh, we saw our first objection, which uh, uh, had been reported to the news as likely uh, to happen by uh, Representative Paul Gozar uh, of the 4th District of Arizona, uh, as well as Senator Ted Cruz, who is the Republican from Texas. Uh, And Senator Cruz has uh, called for a 10-day emergency audit, citing a similar commission in the 1876 presidential election. And then per uh, the constitution and electoral rules, uh, what happened was the Senate and the House returned to their respective chambers for uh, two hours of debate on the objection. And this is when things start to go a little south. Capitol Police evacuated the Cannon House office building uh, and Library of Congress uh, due to what they call quote police action as thousands of uh, people descend on the Capitol to protest. This is just before 2 p.m. Uh, At 2.07, NPR reports that Trump uh, supporters breached the police barricades and made it to the steps on the east side of the Capitol. At 2.16, riders were first reported inside the building. Uh, Trump uh, tweeted at 2.24 that, uh, that, quote, Pence didn't have the courage to do what should have been done. And shortly after, uh, D.C. Mayor uh, Bowser ordered a 12-hour curfew starting at uh, 7 p.m. And uh, something that uh, happened, it was an accident uh, from what they, uh, what aides have later said, but Senator Cruz's camp or uh, his office sent out an automated fundraising email at 2.33 in which he asked people to stand uh, with him in his fight to reject electors. Keep in mind uh, that uh, we first saw rioters inside the building uh, about nine minutes prior. Uh, Representatives are then uh, were were asked by uh, campus or not campus police, sorry. Uh we're were asked by Capitol Police to get them uh, to put on gas masks underneath their seats because tear ba- gas would have been or would be deployed in the rotunda. Uh the first sign uh, the Pr- President Trump then tweets that his uh supporters should be peaceful uh around two thirty eight uh saying that uh, uh urging them to support the Capitol police and law enforcement uh, as uh, the Senate and the House go into lockdown. Shortly after, at 3 p.m., uh, gunshots are heard inside of the Capitol. And we uh, later find out that Capitol Police uh, shot a woman who uh, died later. Uh, House Minority Leader, in a call on Fox News, confirmed reports of shots fired and uh, he called the President, urging him to uh, for uh, calming the situation. Uh, president Trump then later tweeted. Uh, to, uh once again urging no violence uh saying that they are the party of law and order uh mike pence tweeted from his personal account the violence and destruction taking place at the u.s capitol must stop and must stop now anyone involved must respect law enforcement officers and immediately leave the building uh we see a dis- uh, just a little bit of a discrepancy uh from the white house press secretary who tweeted that the national guard was on its way Uh, At Trump's direction. Uh, However, NPR reports that a Defense Department official clarified that the National Guard was only authorized to work with police at intersection and metro stations. And when uh, the DC Mayor uh, Bowser asked for help, uh, she reported that the White House had a delay in response. Around this time, Capitol Police are getting overwhelmed and have placed all the members of, or uh, the members that were not evacuated. Uh, into a shelter in place and we're told to keep quiet. This then starts to spread outside of the Capitol as pipe bombs are found at both the Republican National Con- uh, Committee and the Democratic National Committee headquarters, and were both safely detonated by law enforcement. Uh, Senator uh, Senator Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi both released statements calling on President Trump to uh, have all uh, to demand that all protesters uh, leave the U.S. Capitol and Capitol grounds immediately. Uh, shortly after, at 4:06, uh, President-elect Biden uh, speaks to uh, very similarly to the same message. Uh, in at 4:17. Uh, uh, President Trump tweeted a video that had uh, that was sympathizing with his followers saying, quote, I know your pain, I know you're hurt, but you have to go home now. We have to have peace. We have to have law and order. We don't want anybody hurt. Uh, and meanwhile, we have uh, people inside uh, the Senate. And uh, we have people inside of the Capitol, as law enforcement officials are actually were uh, reported to have taken selfies with insurrectionists in the U.S. Capitol itself. So, as opposed to doing their job to protect the people, their charges inside of um, the U.S. Capitol, we see them taking selfies. So that that just kind of brings up questions of like job, like what are they doing? That's They're going against their job description.
0: Indeed, that underscores the difference in how police forces are retaliating against individuals that are breaking the law based off of their political affiliation, or rather perceived political affiliation, um, which I find particularly interesting and and something that will undoubtedly uh, be uncovered more as a potential future Attorney General Merrick Garland may ultimately create a task force to investigate what exactly occurred, resulting in these police officers taking selfies with insurrectionists. Uh, A sentence I never thought I would utter, uh, but it is a new year, so there we have it
3: yeah, and a little bit later, Twitter then suspends uh, Donald Trump's uh, Instagram or sorry Donald Trump's Twitter account for twelve hours and deleted three tweets. Uh, one was the video, the second was a follow- up tweet. and the third was a the tweet that I previously mentioned criticizing uh, Vice President Pence. and they threatened to uh, remove him if he continues to violate community guidelines. And the day after, Facebook uh, announces a ban of uh, Trump's accounts indefinitely, or at least until the uh, peaceful transition of power was completed. Congress then returns to the Capitol about around 8 p.m. Vice President Pence spoke on the Senate floor, um, as well as Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell calling the rioters thugs, as well as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. So we see a bipart- bipartisan throughout the day um, as, News organizations were calling uh, and getting uh, interviews to these representatives and senators, either in those undisclosed secure locations or those hiding in their offices. We see a bipartisan just hatred of uh, as they basically turn against and say that this is unacceptable. It actually led to uh, several senators, uh, Kelly Loeffler of uh, Georgia, uh, James Langford of Ohio, uh, Steve Danes of Montana and Mike Braun of Indiana to actually drop their objection uh, to the certification of electors. This goes into the night um, and eventually uh, at 345 in the morning, uh, Vice President Mike Pence uh, confirms the Biden and Harris victory. Uh, A little bit later, uh, President Trump tweeted via his social media manager and pledges an orderly transition. However, he said that he would, quote, continue to fight to ensure that only legal votes were counted. Uh, And that's essentially what has uh, brought us to today, where we see uh, acts, uh, where we see, uh, like we mentioned before, the 25th Amendment uh, potentially being invoked, uh, however, uh, we've seen reports that that's not necessarily likely to occur. We've also seen uh, two of uh, Trump's cabinet step down, uh, both Elaine Chow and the Secretary of Education, uh, Betsy DeVos. So that's, that's kind of where we're at. We're seeing a lot more of uh, President Trump's officials kind of uh, leaving in protest uh,
0: as well. And I want to also, before we continue, specify, um, because you mentioned the Electoral Commission that, well, you mentioned Ted Cruz mentioning the Electoral Commission of 1876. And um, for those of you out there who aren't hopeless American history nerds like yours, truly, 1876's Electoral Commission ultimately resulted in the end of Reconstruction, which then subjected Black Americans to another century of uh, no civil rights enforcement in the Jim Crow South. So when Ted Cruz draws a parallel to the Electoral Commission of 1876, um, there is unfortunately an association with segregation and racial violence associated with that invocation. And that's um, something that cannot be understated enough because the end of Reconstruction truly disenfranchised people uh and the ramifications of that are still felt today
2: uh nicholas i just wanted to say thank you i know that that timeline was really probably a little big headache to put together but your work is definitely appreciated in that um and i wanted to to say that you know these events of timelines are are really necessary because it's something that we didn't have back in the day thanks to the, the birth of internet and social media um, and it's really really important uh, to have these specific nonpartisan spaces that are just outlining exactly what happened without additional uh, fluff to sway each because these are just basic facts these are this is what X y and Z person tweeted this is what X y and z person did at XY and Z time like this is this is very basic bare bones and is for anyone to take and to interpret for their own benefit but there is something that um i wanted to to take part because i'm i'm not as much of a history nerd as benjamin but i do i do i did pay attention in history class i'll say that there was a picture from um, january 6th that that really uh actually two pictures that resonated with me uh in a negative way was seeing the confederate flag in the capitol um and knowing how many people died to keep that from happening during the, during the uh, war of 1812, if I remember correctly, feel, feel free to correct me, Benjamin. Civil, civil
0: war, civil war.
2: There it is. There was a, a, a noose upon the top of the, or, or, or in the area of the Capitol um, on Wednesday. And for black Americans, it was, one of the most disgusting images that we could see because our ancestors built the Capitol, not even built, forced to build the Capitol because they were taken from their homes without their permission. They were violated in ways that even I can't even imagine and were, we're subjected to some of the worst violence that I've ever, that I can only hear about. I've never, I've never had to experience, thankfully it's so important to have these kinds of timelines. And I really, really, really encourage for you all to look at the facts first before you start to try and join a side on either side, regardless of that, it's just look at the facts first um, and to, to you all, thank you. Thank you for providing that space for that.
3: Yeah, additionally, just to our listeners, the, out, the, uh, the timeline that I just outlined there that's what we know as of the 8th. And the timeline that was there, that's not all the information that's out there. As we go into the days and weeks and months going forward, we will get clarifications. We will be getting more information about what happened as we get those reports. Uh, so with the release of the podcast, we'll also be releasing the sources that I uh, used in that as well, just so that you can fact check yourself. Because something that's very important to me, and I know for, uh, I, I can, generalize I'm assuming for the community for those here that doing your own research is very important not necessarily just listening to people who tell you things uh, on a podcast on the news just to do your own research because if you just like listen you might fall into the trap of just an echo chamber of hearing things that you only want to hear or that the algorithm will make you want to hear so just make sure that you do your own research and be critical of even your own beliefs as we move forward uh, into tomorrow into next week into four years from now.
0: Great. Thank you so much all. And and so with that, I, I want to lead into um, our outro. And I just want to say that I, I feel that our next steps are um, complicated. And yet, they're also there's some sunlight that's been shown on them. I think we have an idea of where we can go next, and I think there's a lot of good suggestions for what we as student organizers can do next. So I want to ask each and every one of you, um, what are some things that you're looking forward to doing in the student voting network itself over the next few months? And I'll start with you, Erica.
2: I am looking forward to being in a country where we don't make global headlines every week. I'm I'm looking, I'm looking forward to, as my mom would say, boring, you know, like back in the day when when we didn't have every single part of our business um, out there. Um, but more importantly, what I'm looking forward to in the Student Voting Network is for more people to join. We have an upcoming Student Voting Network call on Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Um, so please, if you haven't already, uh, join us. Join the link. Uh, you won't be disappointed. We have so many different projects that are working that we're all working on. But I just hope that that all of us take the time that we need to absorb what's going on before we jump into to anything else. And I, and I say that to me mainly. As I look forward to being in the Student Voting Network, I also look forward to joining more spaces that protect Black people. I feel like I've been doing a lot of a lot of fixing, a lot of fixing of things that I didn't necessarily create or that black people didn't necessarily create. And I'm moving into a lens of protection, of making sure that it doesn't matter. Like I can advocate for the, the right policy, but even if that doesn't go into effect, I'm still going to protect my community from future harm.
0: And so I would ask you, Nick, what are some things that you're looking forward to doing? in the student voting network space
3: sure so yeah something i'm definitely looking forward to is something that we've seen is the fact that there's a lot of like miscommunication that's going on of people not necessarily like people assuming that okay this person is a registered democrat that means that they must follow x y and z beliefs this person's registered republican they must follow x y and z beliefs and it's kind of showing that, and I started this on my campus as well, but want to take this uh, bigger, is kind of showing that people, just because of their party affiliation, doesn't mean that they are always going to follow what the party platform says. Uh, I know that on my campus at w we had a uh, discussion between uh, people of different uh, backgrounds, some who identified as democratic socialists, all the way, all the way to libertarianism, to uh, republicans, to democrats, all across the political spectrum, just to kind of see we're not so different. In We have things that we can work towards together as a group, and just to show that we're not just r or d or an independent or green but ultimately end of the day like we we all can share like there are values that we do share even though that our political beliefs may be different uh and so just working towards that um like erica was saying before helping to expand the student voting network and that's not just to get our personal pride up of getting more members of course uh we, i like to see the number those numbers tick upwards of course but just allowing more voices to be heard in our community uh, across the country, hearing what people's ideas are, trying to bring in more ideas, because more people, more ideas, greater things we can do as as a whole.
0: And last but not least, Emma, why don't you fill us in on what your hopes are over the next couple of weeks and months for the Student Voting Network space?
1: Sure. So, first objectively, um, I am looking at an article by the Brandon Center for Justice, which is a really interesting nonpartisan think tank that tries to amplify all voices um, in their voting systems. I think, given that we're going to see a change in Senate and House leadership, I am expecting HR 1, the For the People Act, to also become Senate Bill 1, which has just been reintroduced, and ultimately become law. Given that we're going to have a new president. I will include a link to the full story. Um, I will admit that this article in particular is very much in favor of this bill. Um, Campus Vote Project is not explicitly endorsing or condemning it. But among other reforms, H.R. 1 aims to nationalize automatic voter registration, uh, make voter registration a reality online for all 50 states, really bring out small donors in our campaign finance system and, well, it can't do this call for a constitutional amendment to overturn the citizens United Supreme Court decision in 2010 it's going to reinstate or restore the Voting Rights Act uh, which key provisions of that were struck down by the Supreme Court which again I think also deserves its own episode basically if this really uh landmark reform bill becomes law we're going to actually have a system where the candidates with the best grassroots organizing teams and the most, uh, promising messages will actually win the election. And if that's the case, we're going to have an even bigger role than we did, uh, in 2020 and before. So I really want to bring out, uh, the importance of grassroots organizing. Um, I'm assuming that sooner or later, HR1 will be law. Also, this is also deserving of its own episode, but I would love to talk more about, um, how voting rights have been impacted in all 50 states. So we, um, again, if you're new to Campus Vote Project, you'll notice that we have a really strong presence in the South and in the Midwest. Basically, we do this among like swing states. So Florida, Ohio, Michigan, uh, North Carolina, those are all states that we have a really strong presence in. With the Student Voting Network in particular, because it's open to students uh, who who live outside of these states, I'd love to see us have a greater presence in the Northeast. I am from Maine and the Northeast, specifically New England really prides itself on being quote unquote progressive, anti-racist. That's great, but at least in my opinion, while Jim Crow may have been a thing of the South, racism is a 50 state issue. And therefore we need to really get more and more northerners involved in the political process, uh, specifically working on anti-racist methods to empower students of color to get involved in elections. So that I think is my primary focus with the student voting network. Um, Again, if you're interested in this, please join our network because we'd love to have you. Before we close out, Ben, what are you looking forward to?
0: I guess the biggest thing I'm looking forward to is continuing to work towards equity. As we get a new administration and a, a new Congress sworn in, it will be interesting to see how how our engagement methods with students nationwide work or, or rather don't work and learning more about what I can do in my greater metropolitan area being both New Jersey and Pennsylvania, what I can do to increase and improve um, student access to ballots in these states. Thanks for asking me. So with that in mind, everybody, I just want to thank you all. Um, Nicholas Bartel, thank you so much for being here with us today to, to talk. Erica Neal, uh, thank you also for being here to, to talk. And again, last but not least, Emma Godell, thank you so much um, for taking the time today. And that will conclude today's podcast. I once again want to thank our listeners, and you can join us in the Student Voting Network space by visiting bit.ly svnslack. That's bit.ly svnslack. We'd be more than happy to take you in under our wing and show you the ropes of that Slack space. Thank you, listeners.